Oh, today that you would hear his voice and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. A reading from Psalm 123. These are God's words. A song of ascent. To you I lift up my eyes, the one enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a servant girl to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to Yahweh our God until he is gracious to us. Be gracious to us, O Yahweh, be gracious to us, for we are greatly saturated with contempt. Our soul is greatly saturated with the mockery of those who are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. Let's thank God for this word and ask for his help. Father, we thank you for this particular psalm that you've given us. Um, You have given us a songbook full of great songs that each of them are crafted in um, a particular and unique way. And Lord, I pray that with this particular psalm, Lord, you would teach us what you want us to know from it and help us, Lord, so that we might be able to sing it with gusto, with our, our whole soul. And may you be pleased with our singing it. Lord, I pray that you would help me as your servant today, teaching your word. I pray that you would bless this time now. In Jesus' name, amen. You can take your seats. Since this psalm is so short, I plan to consider all of its details in the sermon today. This being the case, I would ask that you keep the text right in front of you. We're going to look at every detail very closely. We're going to look at all of its parts and show how they are connected to each other. Remember, every psalm was written as a coherent whole. I've said this before, but I think it's worth pointing out again, especially as we come to this particular psalm. Unlike many modern songwriters, every psalmist has an overarching message that they want to communicate through their poetic composition. Every word and idea has a purpose or a function. They're not just imposing random Christian ideas onto their music. And I have to say, to my shame, I used to do this all the time, find three or four neat sounding chords and then mumble over it a melody and then lace over it some disconnected Christianese jargon. This is not how the psalmists write. All the ideas contained in each song are related and work together to make sense of the psalm as a whole. So as we examine each part of the psalm, the 123rd psalm, we need to be considering how all of its parts fit together. So let's consider the first detail, the title. This is once again a psalm of ascent. So this was to be sung going up, going up to worship at the city on a hill, that is Jerusalem, or up to the temple, the temple mount. We have talked about psalms of ascent before and what they mean to us today. It is helpful for us to consider how our worship on the Lord's Day is an ascent. This building, St. Chad's, is built on the flats around Lake Rotorua. Nevertheless, we spiritually ascend to the place where God is pleased to dwell this morning. We are ascending into his courts with our thanksgiving and praise. One other reality that is worth considering with Psalms of Ascent, as they were originally sung, they would have been sung outdoors. We will explore the importance of this later. Their eyes had access to the skies. 
to the heavens. Which brings us to our first verse. It says, To you I lift up my eyes, the one enthroned in the heavens. A question I'd like us to consider with this verse, first of all, is what was the point in the psalmist lifting up their eyes to God in the song? Isn't God omnipresent, meaning that he, he is spirit and he is present everywhere? Why would one lift their eyes to God if he is everywhere? Isn't that pointless? Why not look straight ahead? And also, why use your eyes at all? I believe these questions stem from a faulty use of systematic theology. This is what I mean. It is true that God is omnipresent, and I believe the psalmist would have understood this fact too. Nevertheless, God is enthroned in the heavens, and this reality is more important when considering how to address him in this particular situation. Let me say it again another way. The theological fact of God's enthronement in the heavens is of greater importance to the psalmist than his omnipresence, so he lifts up his eyes. And in doing so, he called everyone else who sung the psalm of ascent to lift their eyes with their petition. But why? Does this really matter? Is our physical posture and song important to God? The answer is yes. Yes, it is. My argument for this begins with the psalm. The psalmist, either by natural impulse or symbolic understanding, and I think it was the latter, he looked to the heavens, asking that God would be gracious to him. This is actually one of the main themes of the psalm, looking up. Looking up for favor from the one with power. We see what this looking up is like in verse 2. Let's read that verse now. Behold, as the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a servant girl to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to Yahweh, our God, until he is gracious to us. Since the psalmist looks up to God like a slave would his master, it implies that this looking up is being done from down low. When asking for God's favor, the psalmist does, does so like a bowing slave would look up to the hand of their owner, the one who is in control of their fate. We see throughout scripture that the hand is a symbol of power, and the master's hand is the potential of deliverance, and it is the possibility of favor, and it is the means of provision. Many Bible translations do not keep the word slave in this verse, but that is the word the psalmist uses. It's slave. And you'll see in the LSB, it actually switches from slave to servant girl. It's actually just female slave in that second line as well. To fully understand what is going on here, we need the concept of slavery. We need to understand something of what it was like to be a slave at the time of the psalm. Obviously, being a slave is very different than being a hired servant. As a slave, you were completely at your master's mercy. Even in a nation that was under the slave laws of the Torah, which are good laws, much abuse would have taken place at this time. You were still owned by your master, and a lot that would have happened would have been invisible to people. So to be bowed down asking your master for grace as a slave 
could have been a terrible place to be. You were at their mercy. This request should be considered more like a begging than an asking. The way your master answered this request could have meant life or death for you. Now, imagine being in some serious trouble, begging your master for mercy, but standing firm on your two feet, looking him directly in the eye, reflecting nothing of your impotent and desperate position in your posture. Would that posture have any bearing on how your master would perceive you? Of course it would. Body language is language. It communicates a great deal. We know that it is important in human interactions, so why would we believe that our posture has no relevance when we approach God? Many do think it has no importance how we use our body when we relate to God. I have thought that way. You will remember Non has talked about this before. There are times that we ought to be prostrate before God on our face. Being prostrate means something. In the same way, there are times when it is appropriate to address God by lifting up your eyes to the heavens where he is enthroned. It means something. Now, the psalm of ascent, uh, in the psalm of ascent, the psalmist is not physically bowing down, but he is looking up as he ascends, stating the obvious, it is impossible to bow as you are walking up a hill. He ascends, looking up to God like a slave does to his master's hand, but he does not look up in every way like a slave would with his master. This is why bowing down is not necessary in this case, but looking up is entirely appropriate. He's looking up to where his help comes from, to the skies where he hopes national deliverance will calm down for Israel. Now, why do I say that the psalmist was asking for his nation's deliverance. I just asserted that. Look again at the end of verse 2. That verse by itself would suggest that this this isn't about deliverance. Isn't he asking that God would be gracious toward their sins, that God would be forgiving toward them, and that he would not judge them according to what they have done? Why use the word gracious if it were not about forgiveness. The word gracious could trip us up here. He is not asking for forgiveness. So for the next little while, I want to prove to you that he is asking for national deliverance. So let's look closely at what the text says. This is why I wanted you to have the text in front of you. So first, consider the number of the nouns. Number The word number is a technical grammatical term for whether a noun is singular or plural. The number helps us establish that this request was for the nation, starting with verse 1. To you, I, so that's a singular pronoun, he begins with that, lift up my eyes, singular, my eyes, the one enthroned in the heavens. So so verse 1 shows what the psalmist is doing personally. Then in verse 2, Behold, as the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a servant girl to the hand of their mistress, so our eyes, plural, look to Yahweh, our God, plural, until he is gracious to us, plural. So what is going on here? 
I believe the psalmist is personally addressing God at first with the expectation that everyone else will join him in a like manner so that together all those lifting up their eyes in song will receive a gracious response from God that will benefit them all. The plural pronouns show that this was a corporate request, a national request. So remember, this is a a psalm for Israel. Second, notice what the last two verses say. This establishes that this is a request for national deliverance, not for national forgiveness. It tells us why the psalmist is asking God to be gracious. So verse 3, be gracious to us, here's the plural pronoun again, O Yahweh, be gracious to us, for we are greatly saturated with contempt. Our soul, so that's the reason, I'm going to go back to that, for the reason why he wants grace, graciousness, for we are greatly saturated with contempt, our soul is greatly saturated with the mockery of those who are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. So this is addressing an earthly problem. Hey, Naomi, stop playing with Renee. So this is talking about an earthly problem. This request for God to be gracious is actually a request to be delivered from the proud, from the contemptuous. Evidently, the cause for the psalm was the mockery of the wicked. The people of Israel were greatly saturated with it. An interesting way to put it. Imagine coming in from the rain being absolutely saturated. They were dripping wet with contempt. It clung to them. Israel was to sing the psalm so that God would shut the mouths of the proud Gentile nations that were saturating them with contemptuous mockery. Which Gentile nation was doing this to them? We are not told. We are not given the occasion for this psalm, but it could have been written at many points of Israel's history. They were often surrounded by wicked, by the wicked, and the wicked are going to do what the wicked are going to do. They're going to mock. So this, in a sense, could be a perpetual psalm. It is the nature of the wicked to express their pride through mockery. The fruit of pride is mockery, and this mockery will exist in the earth as long as the wicked do. In our God-hating generation, we see it every day. The wicked love to scoff at the righteous, especially when things are going bad for them. They love to point out weakness and laugh at it. They think tripping a blind man or banging a pot beside a deaf man's ears makes for a good joke. So evidently, the position of Israel amongst the nations was very weak. They were down And when the wicked saw it, they loved it. The psalm tells us in verse 4 that the mockers were living in ease at this time. So they were looking down on Israel's struggle from a comfortable position. And they loved to point out the difference in their circumstances. So knowing this, how does it make sense for Israel to ask for grace? Is that the right word? Why not ask for deliverance directly with the word deliverance? I'll get round to answering these questions, but I just want to point out first, using the example of this psalm, how easy it is to misinterpret a passage without doing the work of understanding its context. 
I think many would read verse 2 in isolation and think it means our eyes look to Yahweh, our God, until he forgives us. As though God being gracious must mean forgiveness of sins in every case. But the context does not allow this interpretation. The Hebrew word for gracious does not necessarily have to be translated gracious as the legacy standard version has done here. The NIV, ESV, ASB, and King James all translate the same word as mercy. The NET and literal standard version render it as favor. The NET says, So my eyes will look to the Lord our God until he shows us favor. Showing favor or showing mercy have different connotations to being gracious in our minds. Since this request for persecution to stop, since this is a request for persecution to stop, it seems that mercy or favor fits best. Israel was asking God's, God for his favor so that he would stop the mouths of their enemies. And they promised to ask continually until he showed them this favor. Let's see this in the verse. So our eyes will look to the Lord, our God, until he shows us favor. I want to point out one more thing from the text before we move on to application. I mentioned briefly that this psalm of ascent would have been sung outdoors. Think about what this would have meant for Israel in practice. Looking up outdoors fills your eyes with things of symbolic significance in a way that singing indoors wouldn't. The psalmist did not say, I closed my eyes and thought about the one who is in control. He said, I, uh, to you, I lift up my eyes. And there'll be no point in lifting up his eyes if they were closed. And they were open to the skies, to the one enthroned in the heavens. Israel sung the psalm on their ascent, looking at the skies. That is, with their eyes filled with the things of the heavens, wind and cloud. This had to have soul-filling significance when they sung. What does the Bible say about how the judgment of God comes? We've talked about this many times now. God comes in judgment upon the clouds. He rides the skies. He is enthroned above the cherubim, as we um, heard this morning ensuring that his will be done on earth from heaven, from heaven. On their ascent to the temple, the sky itself would have been a a liturgical reminder of where their help comes from. God made the visible earthly heavens to be a reflection of the unseen heavenly realms. Singing as the psalmist did, outdoors, he pointed his eyes to those symbols of the unseen realm. He would have seen something of the means of his deliverance in those symbols. This is where Yahweh is enthroned. This is where Yahweh works from. I think considering this symbolism explains a bunch of human behavior. Why do wicked men feel the impulse to shake their fist at the heavens? Because they either hate God's activity or his lack of activity. And up there is where it comes from. Why can we all recall times when, without any teaching on biblical symbolism, from my own perspective, we cried out to God as we looked up into the starry sky? We intuitively do this because we know the one who governs all things is in the heavens. 
He has given us all this knowledge, Christian and non-Christian alike. It takes a messed up, disenchanted, enlightenment worldview to turn your eyes away from the heavens. Sadly, this worldview has been baptized today through Christian systematic theology applied with faulty human logic. It was right for the psalmist to lift his eyes to the heavens when calling out to the omnipresent God, and it would be right for us to do the same. So what do we do with all this? What does this mean for us in practice? There is a lot to apply here. Doug Wilson often talks about the need to push the truth out into the corners, and this psalm is dense with truth. There is a lot to apply. But before we do, I think it would be helpful for us to just summarize what the teaching of the psalm is. So Psalm 123 was written for the old covenant people Israel so that they would ask God through song for deliverance from the proud Gentile mockers that surrounded them. As a part of this request, made with heavenward eyes, they acknowledged their impotence and total dependence upon God by comparing their situation before God to that of a slave looking to the hand of their master. They also promised to continue looking to him until he had given them the favor they asked for. So the first application is to how we should consider God. God will not tolerate Christians being mocked forever. He hates it. This is the whole basis for this being a good and proper song, right? If God was totally cool with Israel being mocked, this psalm is a waste of time. Poor little Israel can't handle a little bit of mockery. (laughs) Think about how soft this could seem to the world. A man singing to God that he would stop others from mocking him. If this is how you think about all mockery, if you think this is a little soft, you might need to shift your thinking about mockery or at least add a few categories to it. God hates this kind of mockery, and so should we. This mockery is rejoicing in another one's ruin. He concerns himself with the feelings of his people, feelings of shame through unjust mockery. He is so concerned with them that he has been known to send bears to gore those who mock, including children, depending on how you interpret that passage. Consider how the Apostle Peter spoke of mockery in 1 Peter 4, 3 to 5. And I've got that on your your page there too. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they, I was talking about the Gentiles, the wicked men, They are surprised when you do not join in with them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. They mock you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The hope Peter gives New Covenant Christian readers here, who are experiencing mockery from the ungodly, is the judgment of the living and the dead. He goes there next. He talks about the judgment. Though God uses persecution to advance his kingdom and strengthen his church, in an ultimate sense, God is not pleased with it. 
Persecution is unjust. God is just. Therefore, God will put an end to persecution through judgment. As Peter said, God judges the living and the dead. Mockers will receive earthly judgments while they are alive. This is what Israel was asking for, for deliverance from those who mocked them in time and history at the time that they sung that song. So what does this mean for us today? Have you been mocked for being a Christian? Have you been mocked for how many kids you have? Are you afraid of being mocked for your faith? Aren't we all mocked as a church by the so-called progressive culture? Progressives are what Peter describes in this passage. Degenerates who love evil and can't understand why you don't as well. So they hate and they mock us. Knowing who God is can help us endure progressive hate. Because God is just, because he hates this mockery, he will hold all mockers to account, and he will silence all mockery in time and history. So be bold at your work. Who cares if they mock you? God is in control. He sees it all. Remember what Peter said about their mockery. Also consider what he had to say in the next verse in the same passage, verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that those judged in the flesh, uh, that though judged in the flesh, the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So exposing yourself to mockery may bring about the salvation of those who could have mocked you. In a world full of wicked men, enduring mockery is a necessary step along the path that leads to the conversion of the world. Think about this as well. The fact that God gave us this song to sing is another ground for post-millennial hope. He gave us this request so that it may be answered. Would he give us a prayer that is perfectly in line with his will and not answer it? We can sing this song with confidence, knowing that God will shut the mouths of godless mockery. Considering the full counsel of God, this will be done through both judgment and conversion. So the first application, understand that God hates the unjust mockery of the wicked. The second application, understand that God is sovereign over the outcome of all things. Consider why the psalmist chose to compare God to a slave master. It was because God was in control of his outcome like a slave master. The mockers were not in control. God was always in control over their situation, regardless what sinful men might have brought to the table. If they were to have relief from these sinful men, it would have to come from the hand of their good slave master. So when we sing this song, know that no outside force can stop our request from being answered. What the Lord says goes, and in time he will ensure the deliverance of his people from mockery and every other wicked thing they do to us. 
Third application. Lift up your eyes. I'm sure you have been wondering where I would go with this. <laughs> Should we be lifting up our eyes in worship? Are we losing something by having a roof on this building? It is really difficult to make hard and fast applications to this. We know that not in every psalm he's saying, I lift my eyes up to the Lord. Um, but in this case, he deems it fitting. What we can say for certain, though, is that men and women of God will at times look up physically with their eyes to the God who is enthroned in heaven to sing and pray, and that looking up, that looking up is meaningful and helpful when considering the one we pray to. This is something we need to work into our everyday life. This is what a mature man, the psalmist, wrote. He looked up to the heavens. God speaks not only through his word, but through his creation. And since God speaks through his creation, it is un an unhealthy thing to never go outside, to be constantly staring into your computer screen or down at your phone. We should have regular times of being outside and intentionally reflecting upon the God of creation and the symbolism built into creation. This was how the men and women of biblical times would have spent most of their lives, outside amongst God's symbolic creation. Does intentionally looking up in worship seem like a weird thing to you? It shouldn't. I don't think it would have been weird in the slightest to the people of the psalmist day. It would have been natural. Us moderns have been warped. We are driven by human rationale rather than biblical cosmology. And we likely suffer, in, suffer for it in many ways that we cannot comprehend. As far as the problem of singing psalms of ascent indoors, I don't have a good answer for that, sorry. <laughs> I, th I thought about this for a while, and worshipping in a building is necessary for much of what we do, and I think it's right for us to sing psalms of ascent indoors. I think that lifting our eyes to the heavens is primarily about the posture and the inward posture of the heart that we should have toward God, rather than seeing the symbolism in the sky. But acknowledging this, I think we can have both the posture and the symbolism of looking up if we sing psalms of ascent at other times as well. We are clearly not ascending to a literal earthly temple for worship today. That would actually be prohibited. A rebuilt temple would be blasphemous. We gather as the temple of God, being united together with Christ, the true temple. But without having a physical temple and all that's symbolized in that journey up to it and all of that, we have the same natural symbols of cloud and sky that Israel had. We can meditate on them as they did, and have our faith strengthened as theirs was, looking to the one who's enthroned in the heavens. So I'm making no hard and fast applications to our regular Sunday worship today, only that we must understand the importance of looking up to the one who was enthroned in certain circumstances. I will personally be doing this more as I sing each Lord Day, particularly when we talk about the enthronement of God. Um, one other sub-application that we could make from this is that the psalmist, in order to look up, 
would have had to have known the Psalms by heart. We know that the Jews did memorize large swaths of scripture, including the Psalms. None of them were reading off paper when they worshipped. But we have to look down at our words every Sunday, and especially when we are singing all these new Psalms that we have not sung before. So something we could be working on during our week is memorizing the words of our hymns and psalms so that we can be free to look up. That is what I'm going to try and do, especially with the songs we regularly sing. But yes, this will be a lot of hard work, and it's difficult with um, particularly playing instruments as well. So to sum up the applications we have made today, God hates the unjust mockery of the wicked. It's a big one. He has the power to stop it, and he will. And we must be looking up to God, who sits enthroned in the heavens. So let's sing the psalm now to the tune of Amazing Grace. I lift my eyes. 